11. Elm his mission took with him a blind man. Thus the doctor and his patient appeared as on a professional visit to the exiled oculist. But though the interview was successfully secured in this way, its results were far from satisfactory. Far from feeling grateful for the consideration for the possible consequences to him which Valenzuela pretended had prompted the visit, Rizal indignantly insisted that the country came first. He cited the Spanish republics of South America, with their alternating revolutions and despotisms, as a warning against embarking on a change of government for which the people were not prepared. Education, he declared, was first necessary, and in his opinion general enlightenment was the only road to progress. Valenzuela cut short his trip, glad to escape without anyone realizing that Rizal and he had quarreled. Bonifacio called Rizal a coward when he heard his emissary's report, and enjoined Valenzuela to say nothing of his trip. But the truth leaked out, and there was a falling away in Catapunan membership. Dr. Rizal's own statement respecting the rebellion and Valenzuela's visit may fitly be quoted here, I had no notice at all of what was being planned until the 1st or 2nd of July. In 1896, when Pio Valenzuela came to see me, saying that an uprising was being arranged, I told him that it was absurd, etc. etc. and he answered me that they could bear no more, I advised him that they should have patience, etc. etc. He added then that he had been sent because they had compassion on my life and that probably it would compromise me. I replied that they should have patience and that if anything happened to me I would then prove my innocence. Besides, said I don't consider me, but our country, which is the one that will suffer, I went on to show how absurd was the movement, this, later, P.I.O. Valenzuela testified, he did not tell me that my name was being used, neither did he suggest that I was its chief, or anything of that sort, those who testify that I am the chief which I do not know, nor do I know of having ever treated with them. What proofs do they present of my having accepted this chiefship or that I was in relations with them or with their society? Either they have made use of my name for their own purposes or they have been deceived by others who have. Where is the chief who dictates no order and makes no arrangement? Who is not consulted in anything about so important an enterprise until the last moment? And then when he decides against it is disobeyed? Since the 7th of July of 1892 I have entirely ceased political activity. It seems some have wished to avail themselves of my name for their own ends. This was Rizal's second temptation to engage in politics. The first having been a trap laid by his enemies. A man had come to see Rizal in his earlier days in Dapan, claiming to be a relative and seeking letters to prominent Filipinos. The deceit was too plain and Rizal denounced the envoy to the commandant, whose investigations speedily disclosed the source of the plot. Further prosecution, of course, ceased at once. The visit of some image vendors from Laguna who never before had visited that region, and who seemed more intent on escaping notice than interested in business, appeared suspicious. But upon report of the Jesuits the matter was investigated and nothing really suspicious was found. Rizal's charm of manner and attraction for everyone he met is best shown by his relations with the successive commandants at Dapan, all of whom, except Carnicero, were naturally predisposed against him. But everyone became his friend and champion. One even asked relief on the ground of this growing favorable impression upon his part toward his prisoner. At times there were rumors of Rizal's speedy pardon, and he would think of going regularly into scientific work, collecting for those European museums which had made him proposals that assured ample livelihood and congenial work. 
Then Dr. Blumentra wrote to him of the ravages of disease among the Spanish soldiers in Cuba and the scarcity of surgeons to attend them. Here was a laborer, eminently humanitarian, to quote Rizal's words of his own profession, and it made so strong an appeal to him that, through the new governor-general, for Despotal had been replaced by Blanco, he volunteered his services. The minister of war of that time, General Escarga, was Philippine-born. Blanco considered the time favorable for granting Rizal's petition and thus lifting the decree of deportation without the embarrassment of having the popular prisoner remain in the islands. The thought of resuming his travels evidently inspired the following poem, which was written at about this time. The translation is by Arthur P. Ferguson, the song of the traveler like to a leaf that is fallen and withered, tossed by the tempest from pole unto pole, thus roams the pilgrim abroad without purpose, roams without love, without country or soul, following anxiously treacherous fortune, fortune which e'en as he grasps at it flees, they know the hopes that his yearning is seeking. Yet does the pilgrim embark on the seas, ever impelled by invisible power, destined to roam from the east to the west, oft he remembers the faces of loved ones, dreams of the day when he, too, was at rest, chance may assign him a tomb on the desert, grant him a final asylum of peace, soon by the world and his country forgotten, God rest his soul when his wanderings cease, often the sorrowful pilgrim is envied, circling the globe like a seagull above, little, God. Little they know what avoid saddens his soul by the absence of love. Home may the pilgrim return in the future. Back to his loved ones his footsteps he bends. Naught will he find but the snow and the ruins. Ashes of love and the tomb of his friends. Pilgrim. Be gone. Nor return more hereafter. Stranger thou art in the land of thy birth. Others may sing of their love while rejoicing. Thou once again must roam o'er the earth. Pilgrim. Be gone. Nor return more hereafter. Dry are the tears that a while for thee ran, pilgrim, be gone, and forget thy affliction. Loud laughs the world at the sorrows of man. Chapter X, Consumatum notice of the granting of his request came to Rizal just when repeated disappointments had caused him to prepare for staying in Dapan. Immediately he disposed of his saleable possessions, including a Japanese tea set and large mirror now among the Rizal relics preserved by the government, and a piece of outlying land the deed for which is also among the Rizalena in the Philippines library. Some half-finished busts were thrown into the pool behind the dam. Despite the short notice all was ready for the trip in time, and, attended by some of his schoolboys as well as by Josefina and Rizal's niece, the daughter of his youngest sister, Soledad, whom Josefina wished to adopt, the party set out for Manila. The journey was not an uneventful one, at Dumaguete Rizal was the guest of a Spanish judge at dinner, in Cebu he operated successfully upon the eyes of a foreign merchant, and in Iloilo the local newspaper made much of his presence. The steamer from Dapat reached Manila a little too late for the mail boat for Spain, and Rizal obtained permission to await the next sailing on board the cruiser Castilla, in the bay. Here he was treated like a guest and more than once the Spanish captain invited members of Rizal's family to be his guests at dinner Josefina with little Maria Luisa, the niece and the schoolboys, for whom positions had been obtained. In Manila, the alleged uprising of the Catapunan occurred during this time. A Tonda curate, with an eye to promotion, professed to have discovered a gigantic conspiracy, incited by him. The lower class of Spaniards in Manila made demonstrations against Blanco and tried to force that ordinarily sensible and humane executive into bloodthirsty measures, which should terrorize the Filipinos. 
Blanco had known of the Catapunon but realized that so long as interested parties were using it as a source of revenue, its activities would not go much beyond speech-making. The rabble was not so far-seeing, and from high authorities came advice that the country was in a fever and could only be saved by bloodletting. Wholesale arrests filled every possible place for prisoners in Manila. The guilt of one suspect consisted in having visited the American consul to secure the address of a New York medical journal, and other charges were just as frivolous. There was a reign of terror in Luzon and, to save themselves, members of the Catapunon resorted to that open warfare which, had Blanco's prudent counsels been regarded, would probably have been avoided, while the excitement was at its height, with a number of executions failing to satisfy the blood hunger, Rizal sailed for Spain bearing letters of recommendation from Blanco. These vouched for his exemplary conduct during his exile and stated that he had in no way been implicated in the conspiracies then disturbing the islands. The Spanish mail boat upon which Rizal finally sailed had among its passengers a sick issue, to whose care Rizal devoted himself. And though most of the passengers were openly hostile to one whom they supposed responsible for the existing outbreak, his professional skill led several to avail themselves of his services. These were given with a deference to the ship's doctor which made that official an admirer and champion of his colleague. Three only of the passengers, however, were a really friendly one Juan Uterwai Fernandez, a prominent Mason and Republican, another ex-official in the Philippines who shared Uter's liberal views, and a young man whose father was Republican. But if Rizal's chief adversaries were content that he should go where he would not molest them or longer jeopardize their interests, the rabble that had been excited by the hired newspaper advocates was not so easily calmed. Everyone who felt that his picture had been painted among the lower Spanish types portrayed in Nali Me Tanher was loud for revenge. The clamor grew so great that it seemed possible to take advantage of it to displace General Blanco, who was not a convenient tool for the interests. So his promotion was bought, it is said, to get one pole of Ija, a willing tool, in his place. As soon as this scheme was arranged, a cablegram ordering Rizal's arrest was sent, it overtook the steamer at Suez, thus as a prisoner he completed his journey, but this had not been entirely unforeseen, for when the steamer reached Singapore, Rizal's companion on board, the Filipino millionaire Pedro Pirozas, had deserted the ship, urging the ex-exile to follow his example, Rizal demurred, and said such flight would be considered confession of guilt but he was not fully satisfied in his mind that he was safe. At each port of call his uncertainty as to what course to pursue manifested itself, for though he considered his duty to his country already done, and his life now his own, he would do nothing that suggested in an easy conscience despite his lack of confidence in Spanish justice. At first, not knowing the course of events in Manila, he very naturally blamed Governor General Blanco for bad faith and spoke rather harshly of him in a letter to Dr. Blumentritt, an opinion which he changed later when the truth was revealed to him in Manila. Upon the arrival of the steamer in Barcelona the prisoner was transferred to Montjuic Castle, a political prison associated with many cruelties, there to await the sailing that very day of the Philippine mail boat. The Captain General was the same despotal who had decoyed Rizal into the power of the Spaniards four years before. An interesting interview of some hours duration took place between the governor and the prisoner, in which the clear conscience of the latter seems to have stirred some sense of shame in the man who had so dishonorably deceived him. He never heard of the effort of London friends to deliver him at Singapore by means of habeas corpus proceedings, 
Mr. Regitter furnished the legal inspiration and Mr. Bostead the funds for getting an opinion as to Rizal's status as a prisoner when in British waters. From Sir Edward Clark, ex-solicitor general of Great Britain, Captain Camus, a Filipino living in Singapore, was cabled to. Money was made available in the Chartered Bank of Singapore, as Mr. Bostead's father's firm was in business in that city, and a lawyer, now Sir Hugh Fort, KC of London, was retained secretly, in order that the attempt, if unsuccessful, might not jeopardize the prisoner. A petition was presented to the Supreme Court of the Straits Settlements reciting the facts that Dr. Jose Rizal, according to the Philippine practice of punishing Freemasons without trial, was being deprived of his liberty without warrant of law upon a ship then within the jurisdiction of the court. According to Spanish law Rizal was being illegally held on the Spanish mail steamer colon for the Constitution of Spain forbade detention except on a judge's order. But like most Spanish laws the Constitution was not much respected by Spanish officials. Rizal had never had a hearing before any judge, nor had any charge yet been placed against him. The writ of habeas corpus was justified, provided the colon were a merchant ship that would be subject to British law when in British port. But the mail steamer that carried Rizal also had on board Spanish soldiers and flew the royal flag as if it were a national transport. No one was willing to deny that this condition made the ship floating Spanish territory, and the judge declined to issue the writ. Rizal reached Manila on November 3rd and was at once transferred to Fort Santiago, at first being held in a dungeon in Comunicado and later occupying a small cell on the ground floor. Its furnishings had to be supplied by himself and they consisted of a small rattan table, a high-backed chair, a steamer chair of the same material, and a cot of the kind used by Spanish officers canvas top and collapsible frame which closed up lengthwise. His meals were sent in by his family, being carried by one of his former pupils at Dappen, and such cooking or heating as was necessary was done on an alcohol lamp which had been presented to him in Paris by Mrs. Tavera. An unsuccessful effort had been made earlier to get evidence against Rizal by torturing his brother Pashano. For hours the elder brother had been seated at a table in the headquarters of the political police, a thumbscrew on one hand and pen in the other, while before him was a confession which would implicate Jose Rizal in the Catapunan uprising. The paper remained unsigned, though Pashano was hung up by the elbows till he was insensible, and then cut down that the fall might revive him. Three days of this maltreatment made him so ill that there was no possibility of his signing anything, and he was carted home. It would not be strictly accurate to say that at the close of the 19th century the Spaniards of Manila were using the same tortures that had made their name abhorrent in Europe three centuries earlier, for there was some progress, electricity was employed at times as an improved method of causing anguish, and the thumbscrews were much more neatly finished than those used by the dons of the Dark Ages. Rizal did not approve of the rebellion and desired to issue a manifesto to those of his countrymen who had been deceived into believing that he was their leader. But the proclamation was not politic, for it contained none of those fulsomely flattering phrases which passed for patriotism in the feverish days of 1896. The address was not allowed to be made public but it was passed on to the prosecutor to form another account in the indictment of Jose Rizal for not esteeming Spanish civilization. The following address to some Filipinos shows more clearly and unmistakably than any words of mine exactly what was the state of Rizal's mind in this matter. Countrymen, on my return from Spain I learned that my name had been in use, among some who were in arms, as a war cry. 
the news came as a painful surprise, but, believing it already closed, I kept silent over an incident which I considered irremediable. Now I notice indications of the disturbances continuing and if any still, in good or bad faith, are availing themselves of my name. To stop this abuse and deceive the unwary I hasten to address you these lines that the truth may be known. From the very beginning, when I first had notice of what was being planned, I opposed it, fought it, and demonstrated its absolute impossibility. This is the fact, and witnesses to my words are now living. I was convinced that the scheme was utterly absurd, and, what was worse, would bring great suffering. I did even more, when later, against my advice, the movement materialized. Of my own accord I offered not alone my good offices, but my very life, and even my name, to be used in whatever way might seem best, toward stifling the rebellion, for, convinced of the ills which it would bring, I considered myself fortunate if, at any sacrifice, I could prevent such useless misfortunes, this equally is of record, my countrymen, I have given proofs that I am one most anxious for liberties for our country, and I am still desirous of them, but I place as a prior condition the education of the people, that by means of instruction and industry our country may have an individuality of its own and make itself worthy of these liberties, I have recommended in my writings the study of the civic virtues, without which there is no redemption. I have written likewise and I repeat my words that reforms, to be beneficial, must come from above, that those which come from below are irregularly gained and uncertain. Holding these ideas, I cannot do less than condemn, and I do condemn this uprising as absurd, savage, and plotted behind my back which dishonors us Filipinos and discredits those who could plead our cause. I abhor its criminal methods and disclaim all part in it. Pitying from the bottom of my heart the unwearing who have been deceived, return, then, to your homes, and may God pardon those who have worked in bad faith. Jose Rizal, Fort Santiago, December 15, 1896. Finally a court-martial was convened for Rizal's trial. In the quartel de España, no trained counsel was allowed to defend him, but a list of young army officers was presented from which he might select a nominal defender. Among the names was one which was familiar, Luis Tavio de Andrade, and he proved to be the brother of Rizal's companion during his visit to the Philippines in 1887-88. The young man did his best and risked in popularity in order to be loyal to his client. His defense reads pitiably weak in these days but it was risky then to say even so much. The judge advocate in a ridiculously bombastic effusion gave an alleged sketch of Rizal's life which showed ignorance of almost every material event and then formulated the first precise charge against the prisoner, which was that he had founded an illegal society, alleging that the lie the Filipina had for its sole object to commit the crime of rebellion. The second charge was that Rizal was responsible for the existing rebellion, having caused it, bringing it on by his unceasing labors. An aggravating circumstance was found in the prisoner's being a native of the Philippines. The penalty of death was asked of the court and in the event of pardon being granted by the Crown, the prisoner should at least remain under surveillance for the rest of his life and pay as damages 20.000 pesos. The arguments are so absurd, the bias of the court so palpable, that it is not worthwhile to discuss them. The parallel proceedings in the military trial and execution of Francisco Ferret in Barcelona in 1909 caused worldwide indignation, and the illegality of almost every step. According to Spanish law, 
was shown in numerous articles in the European and American press. Rizal's case was even more brazenly unfair, but Manila was too remote and the news too carefully censored for the facts to become known. The prisoner's arms were tied, corded from elbow to elbow behind his back, and thus he sat through the weary trial while the public jeered him and clamored for his condemnation as the bloodthirsty crowds jeered and clamored in the French reign of terror. Then came the verdict and the prisoner was invited to acknowledge the regularity of the proceedings in the farcical trial by signing the record. To this result emerged, but after a vain protest, affixed his signature. He was at once transferred to the Fort Chapel, there to pass the last 24 hours of his life in preparing for death. The military chaplain offered his services, which were courteously declined. But when the Jesuits came, those instructors of his youth were eagerly welcomed. Rizal's trial had awakened great interest and accounts of everything about the prisoner were cabled by eager correspondents to the Madrid newspapers. One of the newspaper men who visited Rizal in his cell mentions the courtesy of his reception, and relates how the prisoner played the host and insisted on showing his visitor those attentions which Spanish politeness considers due to a guest, saying that these must be permitted, for he was in his own home. The interviewer found the prisoner perfectly calm and natural. Serious of course, but not at all overwhelmed by the near prospect of death, and in discussing his career Rizal displayed that dispassionate attitude toward his own doings that was characteristic of him. Almost as though speaking of a stranger he mentioned that if Archbishop Nozalita's same view had been taken and Nali Mitanher not preached against, he would not have been in prison, and perhaps the rebellion would never have occurred. It is easy for us to recognize that the author referred to the misconception of his novel which had arisen from the publication of the censor's extracts, which consisted of whatever could be construed into coming under one of the three headings of attacks on religion, attacks on government, and reflections on Spanish character, without the slightest regard to the context, but the interviewer, quite honestly, reported Rizal to be regretting his novel instead of regretting its miscomprehension, and he seems to have been equally in error in the way he mistook Rizal's meaning about the Republicans in Spain having led him astray. Rizal's exact words are not given in the newspaper account, but it is not likely that a man would make admissions in a newspaper interview, which if made formally, would have saved his life. Rizal's memory has one safeguard against the misrepresentations which the absence of any witnesses favorable to him make possible regarding his last moments. A political retraction would have prevented his execution, and since the execution did take place, it is reasonable to believe that Rizal died holding the views for which he had expressed himself willing to suffer martyrdom. Yet this view does not reflect upon the good faith of the reporter. It is probable that the prisoner was calling attention to the illogical result that, though he had disregarded the advice of the radical Spaniards who urged him to violent measures, his peaceable agitation had been misunderstood and brought him to the same situation as though he had actually headed a rebellion by arms. His slighting opinion of his great novel was the view he had always held, for like all men who do really great things, he was the reverse of a braggart, and in his remark that he had attempted to do great things without the capacity for gaining success, one recognizes his remembrance of his mother's angry prophecy foretelling failure in all he undertook. His family waited long outside the Governor-General's place to ask a pardon, but in vain, General Polavija had to pay the price of his appointment and refused to see them. The mother and sisters, however, were permitted to say farewell to Rizal in the chapel, under the eyes of the death watch. 
the prisoner had been given the unusual privilege of not being tied, but he was not allowed to approach near his relatives, really for fear that he might pass some writing to them the pretext was made that Rizal might thus obtain the means for committing suicide. To his sister Trinidad Rizal spoke of having nothing to give her by way of remembrance except the alcohol cooking lamp which he had been using, a gift, as he mentioned, from Mrs. Tavera. Then he added quickly, in English, so that the listening guard would not understand, there is something inside, the other events of Rizal's last 24 hours, for he went into the chapel at 7 in the morning of the day preceding his execution, are perplexing, what purported to be a detailed account was promptly published in Barcelona, on Jesuit authority, but one must not forget that Spaniards are not of the phlegmatic disposition which makes for accuracy in minute matters and even when writing history they are dramatically eye-feetland. So while the truthfulness, that is the intent to be fair, may not be questioned, it would not be strange if those who wrote of what happened in the chapel in Fort Santiago during Rizal's last hours did not escape entirely from the influence of the national characteristics. In the main their narrative is to be accepted, but the possibility of unconscious coloring should not be disregarded. In substance it is alleged that Rizal greeted his old instructors and other past acquaintances in a friendly way. He asked for copies of the Gospels and the writings of Thomas Akempis, desired to be formally married to Josephina, and asked to be allowed to confess. The Jesuits responded that first it would be necessary to investigate how far his beliefs conformed to the Roman Catholic teachings. Their catechizing convinced them that he was not orthodox and a religious debate ensued in which Rizal, after advancing all known arguments, was completely vanquished. His marriage was made contingent upon his signing a retraction of his published heresies. The Archbishop had prepared a form which the Jesuits believed Rizal would be little likely to sign, and they secured permission to substitute a shorter one of their own which included only the absolute essentials for reconciliation with the Church, and avoided all political references. They say that Rizal objected only to a disavowal of Freemasonry, stating that in England, where he held his membership, the Masonic institution was not hostile to the church. After some argument, he waived this point and wrote out, at a Jesuit's dictation, the needed retraction, adding some words to strengthen it in parts, indicating his Catholic education and that the act was of his own free will and accord. The prisoner, the priests, and all the Spanish officials present knelt at the altar, at Rizal's suggestion, while he read his retraction aloud. Afterwards he put on a blue scapular kissed the image of the sacred heart he had carved years before, heard mass as when a student in the Otmiel, took communion, and read his acampus or prayed in the intervals. He took breakfast with the Spanish officers, who now regarded him very differently. At six Josephina entered and was married to him by Father Balangor. Now in this narrative there are some apparent discrepancies. Mention is made of Rizal having in an access of devotion signed in a devotionary all the acts of faith and it is said that this book was given to one of his sisters. His chapel gifts to his family have been examined, but though there is a book of devotion, the anchor of faith, it contains no other signature than the presentation on a flyleaf. As to the religious controversy, while in Dapan Rizal carried on with Father Pio Pi, the Jesuit superior, a lengthy discussion involving the interchange of many letters, but he succeeded in fairly maintaining his views and these views would hardly have caused him to be called Protestant in the Roman Catholic Churches of America. Then the theatrical reading aloud of his retraction before the altar does not conform to Rizal's known character. As to the anti-Masonic arguments, 
These appear to be from a work by Monsignor Dupinlip and therefore were not new to Rizal. Furthermore, the book was in his own library. Again, it seems strange that Rizal should have asserted that his Masonic membership was in London when in visiting Street John's Lodge, Scotch Constitution, in Hong Kong in November of 1891, since which date he had not been in London. He registered as from Temple du Honneur de la Amis Francais, an old established Paris lodge. Also the sister Lucia, who was said to have been a witness of the marriage, is not positive that it occurred, having only seen the priest at the altar in his vestments. The record of the marriage has been stated to be in the Manila Cathedral, but it is not there, and as the Jesuit in officiating would have been representing the military chaplain, the entry should have been in the Fort Register. Now in Madrid, Rizal's burial, too, does not indicate that he died in the faith. Yet it would the marriage has been used as an argument for proving that the retraction must have been made. The retraction itself appears in two versions, with slight differences. No one outside the Spanish faction has ever seen the original, though the family nearly got into trouble by their persistence in trying to get sight of it after its first publication. The foregoing might suggest some disbelief, but in fact they are only proofs of the remarks already made about the Spanish carelessness in details and liking for the dramatic. The writer believes Rizal made a retraction, was married canonically, and was given what was intended to be Christian burial. The grounds for this belief rest upon the fact that he seems never to have been estranged in faith from the Roman Catholic Church, but he objected only to certain political and mercenary abuses. The first retraction is written in his style and it certainly contains nothing he could not have signed in Dappen. In fact, Father Obach says that when he wanted to marry Josephina on her first arrival there, Result prepared a practically similar statement. Possibly the report of that priest aided in outlining the draft which the Jesuits substituted for the Archbishop's form. There is no mention of evasions or mental reservations and Result's renunciation of Masonry might have been qualified by the quibble that it was the Masonry which was an enemy of the Church that he was renouncing. Then since his association not affiliation had been with Masons not hostile to religion, he was not abandoning these. The possibility of this line of thought having suggested itself to him appears in his evasions on the witness stand at his trial, though he answered with absolute frankness whatever concerned himself and in everyday life was almost quixotically truthful. When cross-examined about others who would be jeopardized by admitting his acquaintance with them, he used the subterfuge of the symboli.